episode of What's the Story, Old Glory. I'm in Nevada, USA, where I interview journalist Tabitha Mueller. And in past glory, we profile the 11th president, the original dark horse, James K. Polk. Welcome to episode eight of What's the Story, Old Glory. My name's Todd Muller, uh, speaking to you this morning from uh, a warm but windy Tauranga. And Elizabeth, where are you joining us from this morning? So it's afternoon where I am, a day before where you are. I am in Sin City, Las Vegas, Nevada. So I'm here in the States, recording on location. It's very exciting. This this city is like nothing else. If, if you haven't been here, it's complete sensory overload. Um, and I'm going to apologize in advance if there's a lot of noise in the background. It's the fountains at the Bellagio across the road. Uh, that go off every 15 minutes so it's well, it's, it's just a, it's just an insane place to be oh that's that's fantastic and i have to ask of course so what's your view from the uh, uh your hotel window what what do you look out over what do i look out over so directly out my hotel window is the um faux eiffel tower which is enormous it's a third of the height of the real eiffel tower so i'm staying at the paris um hotel and casino uh, so there's a large uh, uh the replica of the eiffel tower there's a large replica of a hot air balloon and there's also a very large replica of the arc de triomphe so it's oh, uh very good. it's like very nothing good. else yes they, they, they they're, they're into copying things there aren't they but yep. one thing they are doing that uh, looks extraordinary is that new bubble thing what did you know the sphere, Tell us about the sphere. I saw yes. a picture of uh, someone uh, sent me a clip of a U2 uh, playing in there. It was, yep. it was absolutely, it looked like a mixture of virtual reality plus a concert. It was It is. It's extraordinary. So you can, you can, it's a, it's some sort of event arena and I haven't been close to it, but I saw it when I um, was in my Uber from the uh, airport and it has images projected all over the outside of it so it's completely as the name suggests it's spherical it's the shape of half a tennis ball and it's enormous um and yeah it, it has concerts so as you say you two are playing there uh they've either just played or they're playing there at the moment um not cheap though cheapest seats to see you two are 800 us dollars each wow that is yeah. something so i'm not going no. <laughs> Just, and so this weekend, there's also it's very busy in town here because there's also the finals of the National Rodeo, as well as the major water users conference that I've been at. And so I've never seen so many cowboy hats in my life. There's, there's cowboys everywhere. I think mainly for the rodeo as opposed to the water users conference. But I I'm, think so. I'm sure you had some cowboy hats there too, I suspect. We, we did, yes. Yeah. So our guest, um, very uh, awesome interview that you uh, have done. It is with Tabitha Mueller, uh, a local journalist uh, in Nevada. Um, where did you meet her and how did we set um, uh, that interview up? Yeah, so I knew I was coming over to Nevada, obviously. So I reached out to a few uh, journalists um, that have been writing about the election um, and uh, got in touch with Tabitha. So I sat down with her, um, not face to face because she's in Reno and I'm in Las Vegas, but we're both in Nevada. Uh, she's from a news organization called the Nevada Independent. And um, she's been, she writes a lot on politics and she's been writing a lot lately about what's been happening in Nevada state politics, particularly in relation to um, some 
top level Republicans in the state that have gotten to a bit of trouble over what happened in the 2020 US election. So that was what um, the thrust of our interview was. Well, let's listen to Elizabeth uh, having a chat to uh, Nevada journalist Tabitha Mueller. So joining us today on our podcast, we have Tabitha Mueller from the Nevada Independent Newspaper, and she is based in Reno, Nevada. And um, she has been reporting recently on events in Nevada in relation to um, the last presidential election, and we're very fortunate to have her. Welcome, Tabitha. Thanks for having me on. Um, It'd be great if you could introduce yourself to our listeners and just give us a little bit of background about yourself. So my name's Tabitha Mueller. I'm a journalist based out of Reno, Nevada. I cover healthcare and politics for the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news organization, so we cover a lot of issues, but we're really focused on statewide politics and policy. And it's funny because I think a lot of people, you know, you say politics and policy, they immediately get a little scared and, you know, they're like, oh, I don't deal with politics too much. But it's really explaining just how life works here, the issues that people face, Um, both at a state government level and also at a more local level, too. Great. Okay, so um, I read your articles about what happened last week um, with the grand jury indictment of six Republicans. So could you tell us a little bit about what happened? Yeah, so basically, if we're going to go back, it's about three years ago, uh, President Don Former President Donald Trump and President Joe Biden had just run against each other in the 2020 election. President Joe Biden had defeated former President Donald Trump by about 2.4 percentage points. And under Nevada's Electoral College system, that means Nevada's six electoral votes, which are tied to the size of the state's congressional delegation, would be cast for Biden because he won here in Nevada. But... As Nevada's electors, who were the actual ones, cast their ballots for Biden on December 14th, six Republican Party electors held a separate ceremony outside of the legislative building in Carson City. And what they did is they were signing documents to cast their votes for Trump, whose campaign had filed a lot of legal challenges here looking to reverse the results of the election based on unfounded accusations of large-scale voter fraud. Those six Republicans submitted the election documents to state and national officials, including the National Archive. And in those documents, it was interesting because they referred to themselves as the duly elected and qualified electors. And that submission wasn't just by itself, though. It was part of this big coordinated move with slates of so-called fake electors in other states and Trump's presidential campaign as they tried to block Congress's certification of the election results on January 6th, 2021. When they filed these documents, what happened next? I mean, did was it that the, um, the people who were presented with those two sets of documents then had to choose between them or, or how did it play out? So, I mean, they obviously were presented with the documents, but you know, we knew who the real electors were. So it was very clear from the beginning that these were fake, that they were forged, that these were not the real documents that, that they were that were coming from the state in this instance. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that it had a massive scale. It, you know, there wasn't a, any problems in terms of that the election, you know, results still came out, that Biden was still duly elected, all of those things. 
But it did present concerns because what they had, you know, what a lot of folks have said is that, hey, this was an attempt to overturn the election here in Nevada, along with other states, as we've seen across the country. And so we don't know totally why they were indicted now, three years later, other than, you know, there were, I assume, and this is just my supposition, but that the attorney general was sort of reviewing different laws that could apply to this sort of specific situation, right? And, and he said in the past that there wasn't a direct statute in law that applied to this instance, right? We don't have mm -hmm. a law saying we, you know, it is illegal to write out a fake document trying to insert yourself as the true electors if you're not, you know? Um, and so what we kind of heard last week, essentially, was that a grand jury had met and indicted these six individuals. And we can go over who they are, but what's interesting is a lot of them are involved with the Nevada GOP party, right? You had the party chair, the national committeemen, there was a Clark County Republican party chair, state party vice chair. I mean, these are people who are pretty high up in Nevada's Republican party. And during that grand jury, the prosecutor sort of presents evidence and says, here's why I think that they should be um, why I think they should be indicted. And they brought charges against the fake electors. And the charges that they chose were, uh, one was for a false instrument for filing, and the second one was uttering a forged document. That, that's where we are today. And what's interesting too about this is that we are at about a three-year limit, which was what's under state law. So basically Nevada law says that any charge for filing false documents for these sort of offenses must come within three years of the offense. So mm -hmm. we are right up on that three-year anniversary of December 14th, 2020, right? Where it's now today when we're talking, it's December 12th, 2023. So the attorney general was really right underneath that deadline. So you said that they, um, that they are high up in the, in the Republican party in Nevada. So they, they got together and self-appointed themselves as electors, essentially? Basically, yes. <laughs> They said, and and it's interesting too because the Trump the Trump campaign had actually tried to overturn the election in the legal system prior to this, and a judge threw it out of court saying, "Hey, this is not. There's no evidence of fraudulent election. There's nothing specific here." It went back. They appealed it to our state Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court kind of threw it out, saying, "You have nothing to base off of. There's no evidence of this, and we're not even going to kind of consider it." So these legal challenges happened in several states. Yes, the legal challenges happened in several states. We saw, I mean, a massive attempt to overturn the election state by state, right? And none of those were successful. And in some ways, I think it's what led to that January 6th um, event, right, is that people were really frustrated because they were convinced that the election had been stolen, even though there was no evidence to that claim. Yeah, so January 6th was the day that protesters stormed the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., Yes. And and Trump is currently facing criminal charges based on what happened in trying to overturn, for instance, the election result in Georgia. Is that correct? That is correct. And they and each state is sort of different here in the US. So like mm -hmm. that's why you're seeing individual charges brought state by state or not. So like you saw the Georgia charges and they're saying, hey, you knew about this 
attempt to overturn the election here in Georgia or to change it. You know, there's the phone call that happened, um, a, a number of other things here in Nevada, though, this indictment is specific to the six Republican electors that day. Right. And so it happened in states like Nevada and Georgia because the election results were so close. I think they might have. This is me, again, inserting a little bit of an opinion here. But from my perspective, I think the election results were close. These are swing states, right? These are states that are not completely red. They're not completely blue. We see voters who will, you know, in one election elect one person and another elect a separate one. So, for example, here in Nevada, we actually have a Republican governor and a Democratic state legislature. So that's it's two different parties that hold control of two, you know, two parts of the state apparatus. Yeah. So the governor is like the president of the state, if I could put it that way. Yeah, I think that's a good way to explain it is the governor sort of the president of the state. And then those the state legislature is sort of this body made up of representatives. It's kind of like Congress or and the Senate is how I would describe it, just at a much, much smaller scale than what we see nationally. Great. So do, do, do you know whether um, President Trump had any specific role in these um, fake elector um, plots in individual states? Was it coordinated from the center, if I can put it that way? Or was it each state acting independently? So basically, what happened is that the Trump campaign was involved in some of this, right? What we saw is passing along of requests to the fake slate to meet in Carson City on December 14th, the day when the actual state electors were meeting, and to certify those fake results. Uh, There was an email exchange that was kind of revealed in transcripts released last December by the U.S. House Committee investigating this January 6th insurrection. In those emails, which happened December 11th and December 12th, Um, There were forwarded documents and memos to the Nevada GOP officials with instructions on how to convene for the ceremony, what to do, and what language to put out even in a press release. And even though attorneys from the campaigns never said they were asking the Nevada GOP to do something illegal, they acknowledged memos that were shared with the fake electors that Nevada law requires the Secretary of State to oversee the electors casting their votes. They also said that it was unlawful to decree faithless electors or cast electoral votes for anyone other than the winner of the popular vote here in Nevada. So they knew what they were doing was wrong? I think that's what that is implying. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Is is that you had these attorneys who were saying, hey, just so you know, this <laughs> is illegal. This is not unlawful. And, and that's all documented within those case with w- that's all documented within those transcripts and, and um, information that was released out of the January 6th committee hearings. Great. So just sorry, I should have um, just to clarify for our listeners, GOP is the Grand Old Party, which is a nickname for the Republican Republican Party. Party. Yes. Yes. After being indicted, they're now facing criminal charges. Yes. So after being indicted, basically, they are facing two separate charges, the false instrument for filing and then uttering a forged instrument. Those charges carry penalties of what we called category C and D felonies. The punishments for them, minimum one year, maximum four to five years, respectively. So that's pretty serious. Yes. If they get found guilty, it's definite prison time. Yes. But it's what's interesting is with a case like this, it's going to, I am curious to see how the case plays out, right? Because I've I've spoken with a couple of different 
attorneys in the community here in Nevada, case law is not specific in what is called a fake elector scheme. So Mm -hmm. what what we're seeing is that Ford brought the charges under these under this like sort of state law. But if the defendants, in this case, the six Republican electors say, hey, we had no idea that this was a leak, you know, that this was counted underneath that law, there's some Mm -hmm. room for the, you know, for a judge jury to kind of say, well, we don't know what's going to happen here. Or, you know, there's there's some wiggle room for them, too. Yeah, because so it's it's sort of like they've been um, charged under sort of general fraud rather than not specifically. Exactly. Because there isn't a specific law. I guess because it's, I don't know, it was assumed that no one would do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and it's interesting because, you know, it, it, like proponents saying, you know, there are some folks who will say this is exactly what it's called underneath the law. And that's going to be an argument that Attorney General Aaron Ford will make as he goes forth. The other part of this that I think is interesting is, you know, other attorneys that I've spoken with have said, look, like, there's this idea where if you have kind of, to put it in layman's terms, sort of a messy understanding of the law, right? So if if the legislature had passed a law that said, you can't do something that causes a mess, and that, that was a law. It's kind of ambiguous. It's sort of open. Mm-hmm. And if I was walking down the street with an ice cream cone in my back pocket and a policeman pulled me over and the policeman said, you are, I'm going to charge you under this messy law, like, how do I know that the, that the ice cream cone was messy? You know what I mean? Like, how do we know mm-hmm. that it actually applies? Now, if there was a law that said you cannot walk down the street with an ice cream cone in your back pocket, then that charge would be extraordinarily clear. So there's, there's some legal ambiguities here, and it's going to be interesting how the case proceeds and, and how people sort of interpret this uh, moving forward. Yeah, because, I mean, is it possible that they could, I don't know, you know, I'm... Um, Maybe this is a rhetorical question, but could they argue that the, what they were doing was largely symbolic anyway? Right. Um, well, and that's the question. It was an argue, show, you know? Right. It was a freedom of speech thing, you know, mm. uh, like like I could see that coming up as one of the, you know, as a trial attorney saying, hey, the, my clients were expressing their right to just speak or share their opinion. Now, whether that's right or wrong is that's up to the legal system to kind of determine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what happens next then? So first of all, we have the arraignment, which will be on the 18th. And that's just going to kind of be our standard, hey, this is what's happening. This is what we saw. We'll get over the next couple of weeks, and we've already gotten some documents. We'll see some more documents from that grand jury indictment, sort of hearing more of the transcripts, those kinds of things. But it might be a while before we actually get a formal hearing, right? Attorneys are notorious for trying to drag things out because like all of us, we like to have as much time as possible to complete our assignments. (laughs) So I I think that that's going to be, it it might even be a year or two before we fully, before the case fully resolves. It could also be sooner. Um, So I, I think that what's next is definitely that arraignment. And then it'll be kind of seeing, well, do we go for a hearing? Is it appealed? All of those processes. Yeah, I guess they might strike a plea bargain to try and avoid jail time right like you know if i'm facing jail time and the potential of it maybe i say look i'll give you a plea bargain please don't stick like some of those witnesses in georgia have haven't they exactly and 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 we don't know yet what's going to happen with this case or how it's going to play out you know one of the things is is like if i am facing up to five years in jail i would probably not want to do that so how do i (laughs) you know and, and if there's 
evidence that I had done the action or, or whatnot. So. Yeah. Okay. So do you have any sort of idea or opinion about how this might affect Nevada voters and come the, A, the primaries and B, the general election next year? Well, one immediate thing that I think is interesting is one of the people who was indicted, he actually announced that he was running for Nevada State Assembly, I mean, oh. maybe an hour or two before the news of the indictment hits. So that might be one way that voters can directly see the effect of this is whether or not his campaign moves forward or, or how that plays out. But mm-hmm. I think on a more local, you know, on a more individual scale, the concerns that are probably coming out about this are what we've been hearing since the election in 2020, right? People who doubt the faith, the validity of the election system, who are, you know, are we going to have another instance where we see these attempts to challenge the results of the election if, for example, Biden wins and Trump doesn't? Um, and, and, and what I would say is that we have seen let me tell you, if I as a reporter had seen that there was any evidence of fraud or anything like that, we would definitely be reporting that. But but a lot of this is misinformation and disinformation mm-hmm. that we've seen spread throughout, you know, through the Internet, through sites that are websites that are not reputable, that are not well researched. Um, and, and I think that's the concern for me is the stability. You know, it, it really requires that voters feel faith in the election system. Um, And so I worry about that personally. Yeah. Does this, um, I mean, it's interesting that Trump's popularity seems to be on the improve rather than going the other way, given everything that's happening with all of his legal issues. With um, actions like this in Nevada, does it actually give fuel to those people who are, you know, how do I put it? being led along by misinformation. Conspiracy theorists might not be the best way to put it, but is this is this sort of, for them, evidence of the deep state working against Trump? Well, and, you know, when, when we say the words deep state, we're talking about, there's a theory called QAnon theorists, and they're yeah. pretty, like, deeply involved in a lot of these election misinformation and disinformation campaigns. I think that, yes, like, you will see people who will take this and say this is just a purely political issue, and they're making mountains out of molehills, and they are crucifying, you know, the people who are truly speaking out on on the faith. I think that's a narrative that we will see and we will hear um, as we head in further into the election. On the other side, though, it's that question of, you know, if people do something wrong, should they be held accountable, especially in as it relates to our election system and undermining the faith in our election system? And like I said, and I'm going to repeat it, and I know it sounds like a broken record, but our election system is very thorough. They triple check everything. You know, the attorney general did actually bring charges against a person who had violated some of the who had violated some election rules. Like, like those are all part of our election system. Right. There's redundancies built into how we ca- count and calculate and tabulate those ballots that are returned to, to triple make sure, right? Everybody was talking about how Nevada was super slow to count our votes <laughs> and it was taking forever. But part of that is because we have redundancies built. We have ways of making sure and triple checking and verifying. And if there's a signature that doesn't match, they try and go find the person and say, hey, signature doesn't match. We have to invalidate this unless you sign off and say, yes, this is my vote. Yes, this is how I voted. This was me. This wasn't someone else. Mm -hmm. We've had a similar situation in New Zealand. We just had our general election and we have, our voting system is different, but we have special votes. And so that's when people cast votes, either they haven't 
um, registered on the electoral roll in time or they're voting in an, in an electorate that's not their home electorate and that takes a couple of weeks and so we've and then we have coalition negotiations so we've been we were without a government for several weeks so when you're not slow <laughs> compared to us that's funny. Well, yeah, it was funny because everybody's like, where is Nevada? It's so slow in counting the votes. And I was like, we are triple checking, guys. Yeah. Everybody knows what happens. Well, and the other question that I had is, I don't know, what are New Zealanders sort of thinking about this issue, right? Like, are they surprised that Trump is sort of the top of the campaign right now in terms of polling and, and the other Republican candidates that we're seeing? Is it sort of like, no, this is expected? Um, I would say generally, yes, they are surprised, but then have been surprised since Trump came down the golden escalator um, and have, I don't know if I can say that we've stopped being surprised because, um, but having said that, the um, mostly what we see now from the US news is about what's happening in terms of foreign policy and that sort of stuff. We don't see a lot um, about um, the American election on the news. And so that's one of the reasons why we've decided to, Todd and I have decided to do this podcast, um, was to educate the New Zealand public a bit more and provide them with information because it's so critical to all of the world in terms of what happens in the States. So um, I think we'll probably get more and more um, stuff happening in the media once we get closer to the election. Um, but also the general, yeah, so the general feeling is how can Trump still be in this? Um, there probably isn't a great lot of understanding about what's happened since um, January 6th with the legal issues and the charges that he's facing and that sort of thing. Um, but also we're surprised at Joe Biden because f to us looking in, he seems quite frail um, and we're surprised that he is still running, basically. Well, it, and it's... It's interesting because I think a lot of American voters feel that way too, to a certain extent on different, you know, from the different parties and perspectives. Like, so the Nevada Independent, every year we do this thing called Indie Fest, and it's, an, it's our annual policy and politics sort of centered event. And as part of it this year, we had sort of a focus group where we brought up voters. We said, hey, can you please talk about sort of your perspective on this or, or where these issues come in? And a lot of folks brought up Biden's on the Democrat side too. Brought up Biden's age, uh, brought up brought up Biden's age, his abilities, you know. And 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 on the opposite side, you know, it was kind of this question of like, well, Trump may not be our first choice, but he's better than Biden, right? So there's there's all sorts of these discussions that are happening within the American media system and within the American public as well. And I think some of the Biden supporters are saying, well, Biden is better than Trump, so I'll take that any day of the week, right? I think the American public itself is sort of grappling with some of this too. Yeah, so it's almost like with a, it sounds like what you're saying, depend, it doesn't matter which side of the political divide you're on, but they're both saying the best of a bad bunch. <laughs> right, which is really disheartening as a political journalist, right? You're like, what? No. And, and and that's not me saying that. That's just kind of a reflection of, hey, this is how the public is sort of my understanding of how the public is feeling from interviews and those kinds of things. Yeah. So that was going to be one of my questions. So what's the what's the sort of mood on the street of the people in, in Nevada um, in relation to the indictments, but also more generally? I mean, is, is this something that they care about? I think this is something that people care about, right? We saw 
folks that were responding to the news of the indictment sort of saying, finally, thank goodness that someone has held these people accountable. But on the other side, like we had talked about earlier, people that are saying they're crucifying them unnecessarily. This is a political gambit. You know, uh, the attorney general has said in previous statements that he would not, that there was not a direct state statute that applied to this. So what does that mean? And, and, and it's sort of those two different responses that we're seeing. But I do think that people care about the news and are responding to it and are kind of waiting to see what happens next. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that's all the questions I had. Um, the uh, Nevada is one of the first primary states. Is that right? In the start of February? Yeah we're, we're, yeah, we're an early primary state. We're not the first one, but we're pretty we're, – we're up there, kind of the start of February. And we have – what's interesting, and I don't know if you guys have looked into this, but we have both – we have – almost two Republican primaries. There's the caucus that's happening. And then there's the actual primary that's on a ballot. So that's going to be... Can you explain that? How how do you have two? (laughs) I thought it was one or the other. Theoretically, it's one or the other. But what happened is that the state passed a law that said, hey, if if we have people who register as part of this primary process, we're going to put them on the ballot and the state will run that election. As they're doing that, the party caucus... the the Republican Party said, we're going to also run a caucus party because we think that this will be a way for candidates to sort of be able to reach voters more directly. So there are two, they're happening simultaneously. But what's interesting is that the Republican Party said that the the Nevada Republican Party said, we will not be recognizing any candidates who are running in the state election. And so there are two sets of candidates that will appear in two different brackets, basically. Um, so it's it's kind of confusing. It is confusing. So how does the how does how do the votes the the votes actually get counted in February this upcoming February? Nevada Democrats and Republicans will obviously have the presidential candidates running on their twenty twenty four general election ballot, mm-hmm. right? The filing period for that was October, um, and if two or more candidates from a major party file, the state has to hold a primary mm-hmm. on that first Tuesday in February. Right. The primary will only be held if will the primary will not be held if one or no candidates file to run. So keep that in mind. But at the same time. Something that may draw some candidates away from that primary filing and that did is the Nevada Republican Party, which has a planned presidential caucus set for February 8th, two days after the primaries. And the party said it will use the results of the caucus, not the primary, to determine how it will award the state's delegates at the Republican nominating convention. And the way that they that the party has sort of addressed this primary that's going to happen at the state level through the state ballot mm-hmm. um, is that they're charging what they call a ballot access fee of $55,000 and barring candidates from participating in both elections. So meaning some candidates, the big one being former President Donald Trump, are going to run in the Republican caucus rather than that primary. Um and it's it's a little bit confusing. And so one of the things that we've done on our website actually is we've laid out kind of how this works and why and who is filed. So like on that Republican primary that will be going on the ballot is going to be Nikki Haley. She's the former South Carolina governor, US former US ambassador to the UN. Um, and then a 
South Dakota resident named Donald uh, Kajorns, Tim Scott, who is the senator from South Carolina. Mike Pence was on that, but then obviously he dropped out um, of the election, but I believe he'll still be on the ballot there. Um, the caucus candidates are some of the bigger names that we've seen on the polling, right? Ron DeSantis, Chris Christie, former President Donald Trump, um, all of those, and, and so on and so forth. So why um, would so Haley put her name on the primary if, she's, if, if the Republican Party is just going to ignore that? So I think one of the one of the complaints from candidates is that the Republican Party has been extraordinarily pro Trump and a lot of Republican candidates who are part of the presidential primary have said that this process is sort of geared in favor of Trump right and and obviously the party chair Michael McDonald uh he he's one of the fake electors who had tried to swing the states he's very pro Trump um he has said that this will allow candidates to interact with voters more directly. So that's their sort of response to this. Um, but but I, I think that's the sort of pushback from certain candidates, mm. including, I believe, Mike Pence at the time as well. Mm. Wow, that's fascinating. Thank you. Um, well, so what's your website if our listeners want to check that out? So if you want to check out our website, it's the nevadaindependent.com. There's no paywall. There's no fees that you'll have to. Every article should be accessible. And we have a whole election sec section that you can click on that has our election newsletter with more information about the electoral, um, which has more information about the electoral system and this caucus primary debate, as well as some other um, interesting side notes and, and tidbits about what's happening in the election here in Nevada. Fantastic. We'll link to that in our show notes so that our listeners can find it. But um, thank you so much for your time, Tabitha. That was a fascinating conversation. And we, if you've got the time, we might get you back um, after February the 8th when those primaries and the caucus have occurred and you can give us an update on how it all played out. And also if there's any um, exciting new developments in the criminal charges against those fake electors. Absolutely. I'm always happy to talk. Thank you. Well, we do tend to use the word extraordinary a lot, but uh, I did find that quite astounding, actually, and extraordinary. Um, it seems as if the um, partisan disease that uh, we see uh, most manifest, actually, in the elections between the two um, for president, between um, mm -hmm. the Republican and the Democrat uh, candidate, is permeating through um, all the state legislatures as well. I mean, that is quite extraordinary 20, and it, that in 2020, the uh, Republican um, uh, delegates, if you like, who would have gone to um, confirm Trump to Washington, you know, if it, as part of that um, confirmation process, if Trump had won, deciding that they would um, stand and confirm that he'd won anyway in Nevada when clearly he hadn't. I mean, Correct. what on earth would possess them to do that apart from the fundamental view that, you know, um, their guy won and the whole thing's a conspiracy. And seemingly knowingly that, that, that what they were doing was fraudulent um, against advice to that effect. Um, but it sounds like it was, you know, Trump had a lot to do with it. And I think in a future episode, it would probably be worthwhile us devoting some particular time to Trump's legal issues, but perhaps in particular the issues that, he, that he's facing in Georgia, 
around um, trying to influence the outcome of the election results in that state. And um, just just to yeah to unpack that a bit more. I mean, for instance, at the moment there's uh, I think there's decision pending. I think it was out of Georgia as well, where two of the election workers who have been widely they were named and um, uh, I don't want to say shamed because that they did nothing wrong, but um, they were named and vilified in the media and on social media by Rudy Giuliani and, and Donald Trump, and they've sued Rudy Giuliani um, for an un, undetermined sum, and uh, the decision is pending. So we, it's likely to be significant if he's found um, to have defamed them, which which all accounts is very likely. Um, that he'll be, he could be bankrupted by this process, as well as being indicted himself for trying to uh, affect the election results in Georgia. So it's the the twenty twenty election is still uh, the effects of it are still happening, and mm. it's it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out and affects what happens in twenty twenty four. Yes, uh, in many ways, twenty twenty four is um, you know the latest reprise of that. Um, ongoing, I guess, struggle for the future of America, really, uh, what type of country um, you want. It's, um, it's going to be quite uh, something. And then I see um, uh, in Oregon, uh, which perhaps is worth pursuing at a, at a later uh, uh, episode, uh, the Republican lawmakers in, in their legislature in the last 48 hours have been banned for uh, banned to run again because they have essentially walked out uh, of their legislature and if you don't turn up for a certain amount of time you can't stand for re-election so hugely partisan and toxic in Oregon as uh, as well so why did they walk out do we know well because of the a fundamental disagreement over the direction of the democratic majority uh, and felt their uh, voices weren't being heard Um, and uh, so again a quite a, a remarkably strident thing to do. Normally, if you mm. don't get your um, particular policies through in a legislature, you campaign to make sure you win in the next uh, elections as opposed to walk out in the half. But uh, that's what that's what they've done. So that's the thing that jumps out to me is, look, it is uh, very uh, partisan, you know, not only nationally, but yeah. state by state, the same sort of thing. And I've heard a quote that's, uh, to, to, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's to the effect of, Democracy only works if someone's willing to lose. So mm. you have to take the, the losses with the wins in a democratic system. And it, it seems like the, Re- the Republicans in particular have been unwilling to lose. Um, it's an all or nothing, zero sum game for them, which um, is concerning in terms of, as Tabitha mentioned, what that means for people's trust in the system mm. um, and, and for the future of American democracy. It's pretty concerning. Mm. Very, very well said. Fantastic interview. Right, would you like to hear my uh, presidential um, past glory? I certainly would. Who Who are you profiling this, well, this episode? I, thought, I would thought I'd profile someone who has a very low profile, actually, but I think mm-hmm. um, when you reflect on his time in office is someone who uh, had quite a profound impact on the future of America. His name is uh, President James K. Polk, P-O-L-K. Ah. And he was the 11th president. Um, he served from 1845 to 1849, just four years. 
but achieved um, quite some fundamental changes in America over that four years. He was born on the 2nd of November, 1795. He and his wife didn't have any uh, children. He was very, very focused on um, supporting Andrew Jackson initially in his various military campaigns uh, and then uh, got involved in um, uh, politics. The only person in American history who has been the Speaker of the House to then go on and become the President of the United States. So that's wow. one little um, unique aspect. He is also the first and only one of two presidents who said all along they would only stand for one term. As uh, most of our listeners would understand, most most um, individuals, when they get to taste the power of the office, want to certainly go again. And uh, the famous, of course, the most famous one, of course, was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who did four terms, was elected four terms, died early in his fourth term, which then resulted in a change to uh, the US Constitution and amendment, which meant you can only do two terms. But since then, and of course, prior to that, with only two exceptions, uh, most individuals sought at least a second term. And he didn't. He was the first to say, actually, I only ever, I'd only want to do one term. Uh, and he did During his campaign, yes, if you could call it campaign back then. Yes, he made it absolutely clear he would only do uh, one term. Now, the, the nature of his uh, selection for the Democratic, um, he was a Democratic candidate against a Whig candidate, Henry Clay. Uh, what was fascinating is that he was... Uh, very, very uh, focused on um, the value, as he saw it, of the United States annexing territories of Mexico that um, uh, I'll touch on uh, shortly, the northern territories of Mexico. And he was the only person really a leading political uh, candidate who held that view. Both Martin Van Buren, who had been a previous president, a Democratic uh, president, who was standing, who wanted the nomination, uh, and the um, Whig um, opponent, Henry uh, Clay, uh, both uh, at the time said that was a fraught uh, thing to do and opposed uh, expanding US territory at the expense of Mexico. Uh, James K. Polk said no, he actually thought that should happen, and he was supported by former President Andrew Jackson, uh, who believed that it was all part of America's manifest destiny to uh, essentially grab as much territory as possible in the continent. So James Polk got uh, the nomination, I think after nine back and forths to decide who would uh, uh, get the nomination. He was the uh, called the very first dark horse candidate uh, and he won quite comfortably. So why have I picked him beyond the fact that he was the speaker uh, first and the first uh, candidate to say that he would uh, be only for one term. The other, by the way, is Rutherford B. Hayes. He deserves a whole section on himself. Uh, I won't go there today. Um, the reason is obviously because he had such a bullish approach to uh, American expansionism. He tipped America straight into a war against uh, Mexico, which uh, was successful. Uh, he also, at the same time, there was threatening a war with the British over the territory of uh, um, what became Oregon. And he settled that with the British and agreed with the British uh, a continuation of the 49th parallel, 
expanding essentially the Canadian and American border all the way from the Rockies through to the Pacific. Uh, but in but in doing that, um, cemented Oregon as part of the United States territory. And of course, because he was successful in prosecuting the Mexican War, uh, uh, managed to get a remarkable uh, concession from the Mexicans, who themselves had only been independent for 20 years from the Spanish, um, mm-hmm. uh, when and what's called the Mexican cessation, which was essentially the deal that Mexico signed after their uh, a war with the United States that Polk, President Polk oversaw, 1.3 million square kilometres got ceded by Mexico to America, which included wow. all of California, where you are at the moment, Nevada, Utah, the western half of New Mexico, and parts of Colorado and Wyoming. And so that was uh, the single largest expansion of American territory that any president oversaw. But it's practically the whole West, it's isn't it? The whole West. It's the Western states, yeah. But the reason that he then becomes so profound, that would be enough, in my opinion, to rate to rank him as a significant president. But what he was doing inadvertently was sowing the seeds for the Civil War because there was no agreement between the North or the South as to how mm-hmm. to treat that you know, those new territories with respect to slavery. The Southern mm-hmm. states expected that they that their view that slavery could be expanded into those new territories, the northern states were very opposed to that, and that uh, at its core was one of the big drivers for the civil uh, war. So a single, relatively single term, relatively unknown president, uh, but I think you know when you look back, um, certainly. For good or ill, uh, involved in activities that were substantive for the future of the United States. Yeah, not 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 well heard of. You're right. He's not when people think of important presidents. Polk doesn't doesn't figure <laughs> doesn't figure anywhere. But when you think of it in the context of what got achieved in four years, very uh, mm. significant. Yeah, one point three million square kilometers, eye watering. Mm. Um, and uh, as and I suspect uh, most uh, in America would probably not be that familiar with the role that President Polk uh, played uh, in uh, the establishment of that territory for the United States. Mm. Thank you. Very interesting. So for our next episode, I will be um, coming to you from Capitol Hill. Um, the this Hill is very on... exciting. You're in it is very exciting. I'll be in DC. What's the story podcast from DC? So this will be um, yeah. a little bit. I can't wait for that one. That'll be uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, it will be. I'll hopefully find some good people to interview while I'm there. I'm um, planning, uh, I know some staffers in Congress, so I'm hopefully going to get a behind the scenes tour um, of some of the Capitol buildings. So it's going to be really interesting and I'm really looking forward to it. Brilliant. I'll be able to see the Christmas tree at the White House on the ellipse. Brilliant. Well, uh, look forward to that episode. Uh, And until then, uh, it's goodbye from me, Todd Muller. And goodbye from me, Elizabeth Soule in Sin City. What's the Story Old Glory is written, edited and produced by Todd Muller and Elizabeth Soule for Old Glory Casting. Our theme music is Shootout at Sundown by Del Boney. Our cover art is by Caitlin at Studio Naylor. 
If you're enjoying our podcast, please write a review and give us a five-star rating. You can find us on all social media platforms at Old Glory Pod. If you've got any questions or have a president you'd like us to profile in past glory, please send us an email at oldglorypod at gmail.com. 